Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. To encourage you now to take your Bibles, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. And while you're turning there, just a, a reminder of where we've been in recent weeks. Paul's been explaining God's plan to save sinners by uniting them to Jesus through faith. And in this plan, God would reconcile sinners to himself. But then he's also broken down the barrier between Jew and Gentile and reconciled his people to one another as well. And so now men and women from every tribe and every tongue and every nation have become fellow citizens in the kingdom of God and siblings in God's family so that Gentiles and Jews are one body in Christ. That's what we've seen so far, particularly in chapter 2. And in some ways, this may seem fairly obvious to us. We're used to thinking that, well, of course, anyone from all around the world can come to put their faith in Jesus. We know that. But that was not always so obvious. In fact, to invite all people into the presence of God without the need of circumcision, without the need to live under the Old Testament Jewish law, was impossible for centuries. That salvation could be offered freely to the Gentiles through faith in Christ, so that Jew and Gentile would be united together in one people, was an unexpected development that was hidden for many years. And Paul calls this union of Jew and Gentile a mystery that was hidden for generations, but now has been revealed in Christ. And in our passage this morning, it's this mystery that Paul wants to go on to talk a bit more about. So if you are at Ephesians chapter 3, let's read verses 1 through 13 together. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, Assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. And to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for another passage in your word. And we pray that your spirit would work in our hearts, that we might marvel anew at Christ, 
and might honor you and love one another as your people this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I'm not sure what first comes into your mind when you hear the word mystery. For me, it's a mystery novel. I first started enjoying mystery novels, I think, with the boxcar children in elementary school, and then I think I graduated to Father Brown, and then to Sherlock Holmes, and and then uh, probably to Dorothy Sayers and Agatha Christie. And there's something particularly satisfying about uh, a good mystery novel. In any good mystery story, there's usually information we don't know at the beginning, so we can't figure out the crime. And, and, and the plot takes us in twists and turns. It introduces new suspects and new information until finally the key facts suddenly shed light on what had happened. And of course, it's not just in stories. This happens in real life, too. Particularly recently, as DNA technology has continued to improve, Crimes that have been mysteries for decades now have a chance of being solved. Like in 2017, the the murder of Nova Welsh, which had been a complete mystery to authorities for 35 years, was solved when DNA testing was done on a 35-year-old piece of chewed gum found at the crime scene. It gave police new evidence that they needed to understand the case and arrest Osmond Bell. On perhaps a similar way, when Paul talks about God's plan of salvation, he calls it a mystery. And he calls it a mystery not because it's vague or uncertain or you can't understand it. He calls it a mystery because for centuries, for years, it was unknown. The key facts were known only to God. While there were promises, there were hints, the key information of how God would fulfill all of his promises were not known until Christ appeared. And Paul's main point in our passage this morning is that God's surprising plan of salvation, which was a mystery for generations, has now been revealed through Christ in the church to the glory of God. And as Paul makes his point, he starts in verses 1 through 6. And there, if we look at those verses, we'll see Paul give us a definition of this mystery, the definition of the mystery. As Paul writes this letter, he tells us right off he's a prisoner, likely a prisoner in Rome. And if you were to flip in your Bibles back to Acts chapter 21, you would find out how he became a prisoner. He became a prisoner because Jews in Jerusalem raised a riot over the fact that Paul was proclaiming salvation to the Gentiles. So when Paul says that he's a prisoner on behalf of you Gentiles, he means it quite literally. It was for proclaiming the gospel to the Gentiles that Paul was arrested in the context of that riot. And why was Paul preaching the gospel to the Gentiles? Well, because of the mystery in God's plan of salvation. For thousands of years in the days leading up to Jesus, God's people and God's prophets had received hints at what God's plan of salvation would involve, but there was so much that was not yet revealed. Peter puts this so well in 1 Peter chapter 1. When he says that the prophets inquired about the details of what was to come and that even the angels longed for a sneak peek at God's plan of salvation that was hidden until Jesus arrived. But now Jesus has come. And Paul says that God has now made this mystery known to the apostles and the prophets by his spirit. And in verse 3, Paul says, in fact, that this mystery was made known to him directly by revelation. And therefore, Paul is in good position to be able to tell us what this mystery is. And he gives us the definition in verse 6. 
the mystery which was hidden before, but now is an open fact to be proclaimed to every nation, is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise of Christ. Now Paul's description here piles up words to emphasize the equality between Jew and Gentile and God's people. And we've seen this already in chapter 2, but Paul returns to this emphasis again saying that Jew and Gentile are joint heirs together of the same inheritance. Well, what's a joint heir? It's when two people are listed together in a will. They're going to divide the will, the the inheritance equally. They're co-heirs, joint heirs. And Paul's reminding us that the Gentiles are not just allowed in the house now. God has actually adopted new sons and daughters who are fully included in his will on an equal basis with his children, his other children. And now they are also members together of the same body. Jew and Gentile are equally invited into full membership, belonging in one body of God's people. And they're partakers of the promise. What promise are they partakers of? Well, it's that promise that started back in Genesis 3, when God said to Adam that he would send a seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. It's the promise that continued through Abraham, that through his descendants, kings would be born through whom? All the families of the earth would be blessed. It's the promise to David that a descendant would come from him who would reign on God's throne forever and be the key to ruling all of God's people. Those promises that were made to the Jews, the Gentiles now can read as applying to them. That promise is for them too through Jesus Christ. And again, in some ways, this may seem obvious to us. Well, of course anyone can put their faith in Christ, but this was not obvious in the first century. It was astounding. It was offensive to some. That's why Paul's in prison. But it was glorious news for the world. And this news that everyone, Jew and Gentile, is welcomed into full and equal inclusion in God's people through Jesus Christ, it impacts our relationships with one another, doesn't it? Jew and Gentile may not be the largest division between us, but whatever difference there may be, whether it's socioeconomic or racial or cultural or life experience or anything else, is of little importance in the people of God. There is no ranking. There is no division in God's people. And so we look to one another as fellow heirs of one body in Jesus Christ. And of course, this glorious news also reminds us of the unexpected glory of the gospel. And it all starts with this mystery that was hidden but has now been revealed. The good news that we are all alike welcomed into full membership in God's people. Well, that's the definition of the mystery. But Paul goes on then in verses 7 to 9 to marvel at his role in proclaiming this mystery. Paul says that he has been given this gift of God's grace to be a minister of the gospel. And it's really quite an unexpected irony that Paul is the one given the ministry to take the gospel to the Gentiles. After all, just just think back for a minute to who Paul was when he was Saul of Tarsus. To start, Saul of Tarsus hated the church. He was trying to stamp the church out. He was opposed to the name of Christ. So the fact that he would be entrusted with this ministry to take the name of Christ to the nations is surprising. It's unexpected. But it goes even a step beyond that as well. Remember who Saul was. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He had his 
PhD, if you will, in the Old Testament law. He was a professional at keeping God's Old Testament law, knowing God's Old Testament law, which was that barrier between Jew and Gentile. So the fact that he, a Pharisee of Pharisees, would be called to take the gospel to the Gentiles is, again, an unexpected work of God. As I was thinking about it this week, I thought maybe, maybe it would be analogous to uh, hearing an announcement this week that Kamala Harris is leading a new national pro-life campaign. It's the kind of thing that causes us to laugh out loud for the joy of God's sense of humor, that Saul of Tarsus would be called to be Paul and be entrusted with the stewardship of the ministry to take the gospel to the Gentiles. So here's Paul's full-time job now. This stewardship entrusted him to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And that's such a precious phrase. And I think it's no wonder that Paul would choose to use that phrase, the unsearchable riches of Christ. Because Paul remembers who he was, the very least of all the saints, actively in rebellion against God, trying to stamp the church out. And it's that Saul who's now been given all of the blessings of the gospel in Jesus Christ. All of the things Paul has just rehearsed in the first two chapters of Ephesians. He's been given resurrection from death and sin to life with God. He's been given access to the presence of God. He's been raised into the heavenly places with Christ. He's been reconciled to God with peace. He's been welcomed into the one new community of God's people. He's been made an heir of God's promises, a citizen of God's kingdom. And so to think of who Paul was and now all that he has been given in Christ, no wonder that he would say that his role is to preach the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ. It's no wonder when Paul thinks of who he was and what he has been given And the fact that God has many more people all around the world that he longs to call to himself, it's no wonder that Paul had such a zeal to take the gospel to the nations. And while Paul was certainly unique in many ways, the same principle really applies to us as well, doesn't it? We may not have been trying to stamp the church out, but it doesn't take a very thorough review of our minds and our hearts and our lives to realize that it's just as surprising that God would call any one of us to be his people as well. We are no more deserving than Saul of Tarsus was. And the list of unsearchable riches that are given to us in Christ is just as astounding for us as it was to Paul. And so we, too, should have the same zeal to talk of Jesus and take his name to those around us. Some, like Paul, may have a specific ministry that God calls them to. I think of Hudson Taylor. Many of you know that name, the missionary to China. And from a young age, Hudson Taylor tells of a time when he was, he was praying and asking God to reveal to him what he should do. He said, I will go anywhere, God. I will do anything that you call me to. And he says at a particular moment, God gave him a great sense of peace and one word that dominated his life. China. And so Taylor started to teach himself Greek and Hebrew so that he'd be able to accurately teach the Word of God in China. He was a sickly boy, and so he started doing morning workouts in the cold and sleeping on boards to toughen his body so he could go to China. The only thing he could find in Chinese was a small gospel of Luke. 
He didn't know anyone who spoke Chinese. So on his own, he took his English copy of Luke and the Chinese copy of Luke and began to seek to decipher Chinese so that he could be ready to preach the gospel in China. A few years later, he got an infection and the doctor told him that he should return home immediately and set his affairs in order for he was going to die of this infection. And Taylor responded, he said, well, I'm not afraid to die, but actually I can't die. How's that as a response to the doctor? He said, see, God has called me to China and I haven't gone there yet. And Taylor was right. He recovered and he went to China to take the gospel. This is a stewardship of God's grace, a zeal for those who don't know the Lord that is only driven by realizing how little we deserve the gospel and how much God has given us in Christ. And many of us may not have that kind of crystal clear and focused calling like Hudson Taylor did. But God has still entrusted to each of us the good news that Jesus has died to take away sins and to give eternal life to any who will put their trust in him. And so we are all, like Paul, stewards of God's grace, called to be faithful, to share that news wherever God has placed us, in your schools, in your workplaces, in your neighborhoods. And I'll be the first to say that I I feel my inadequacies in this way. I'm no fantastic evangelist. But I pray that God would make me faithful. And as I think about what I would have us do as a congregation, there are, there are three things that I'm doing and, and hope that we would do together. I'm praying regularly for opportunities to share the gospel, especially for my neighbors who live right around me. I'm looking for opportunities and relationships and conversations that might enable me to share the gospel. I'm praying for wisdom and boldness. Whenever I go somewhere where I know there are unbelievers, an airplane or a gym, that that God would make me faithful. And my prayer is that all of us would grow in our zeal and faithfulness to talk of Christ when we realize all the more deeply how little we deserve God's salvation and we realize how grandly, how much we have been given all the unsearchable riches God has given us in Christ. And we realize how many do not know him. So this is Paul's calling to preach the gospel, his marveling that he would be called to do so. But as we look back to the text, look then at verses 9 and 10. Thirdly, Paul concludes by declaring God's purpose in bringing Jews and Gentiles together in one body in Christ. And you see it in verses 9 and 10. God has this goal that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. And here we have a strong statement of the importance of the church in God's plan. The church is a demonstration of God's power, for only the power of God could make dead people alive. The church is a demonstration of God's grace, because we are all a gathering of people who do not deserve God's goodness at all. Paul says that the church also demonstrates God's manifold wisdom. When we talk about God's wisdom, we're talking about God's perfect ability to bring about exactly what ought to happen to fulfill his purposes. And the church, Paul says, demonstrates the manifold wisdom of God in such a way that the whole world and even the angels, you see, you see there in verse 10 how even the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places see God's wisdom and marvel at God's wisdom when they see it in the church. Well, how does the church demonstrate God's wisdom? It does so in multiple ways. The church, I think, shows God's wisdom in sending his own son as a man to live and die in our place. 
Because Jesus' life and death was the only way for God to both vindicate his justice and save sinners to be his people. It shows God's wisdom. But then the church also shows God's wisdom because only through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ could God bring Jew and Gentile, people from every tribe and tongue and nation, together into one new community, united as fellow citizens in heaven and members of God's family across generations, across cultures. Nothing like that can be found in all of the world except in Jesus Christ. And then in verse 11, Paul notes that God's wisdom is seen in the church because in the church, God's eternal purpose is accomplished. If you remember back in chapter 1, Paul told us what God's eternal purpose was. It was to unite all things under Christ. Well, what's happening in the church? Jew and Gentile are brought together, united together under Christ so that God's people are brought back from sin restored to fellowship with him, given bold access with confidence into the presence of God together through Jesus Christ, so that with him and in him we are united, just as God had intended from the beginning. So this is why in Paul's thinking, the one unified church of God's people, the mystery that was hidden for ages but now revealed, is the demonstration of God's wisdom to God's glory. Let me, let me finish then by mentioning maybe two applications that come from this for us. And the first one is actually one that Paul himself mentions there in verse 13. If God is up to such a great plan, if God is building his church to the glory of his name, then Paul says that the Ephesians should not lose heart over what he is suffering. You could imagine what the Ephesians might be thinking. Here, here is Paul, this, this apostle, and he's in prison He's imprisoned. Is that keeping the gospel from going forth that our our apostle is, is suffering? But Paul says, don't lose heart over this. And Paul's thinking, I think, makes perfect sense. What is a bit of time in prison if it is part of God's wise plan to accomplish his purpose that will result in their glory? Who would complain about some momentary light afflictions if they are working out an eternal weight of glory, as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 4? But I want you to notice specifically what Paul's saying here. You know, we, we often ask, why would God allow suffering in our lives? And there are a number of reasons that God allows suffering in our lives. And certainly one of the answers to the, those questions is that God uses our sufferings to make us more like Christ and to draw us into greater dependence on Christ. But that's not what Paul's saying here. Paul's saying something different. Paul doesn't say that God is working in him through his suffering. Paul says that his suffering is working for the Ephesians' glory. In other words, God is using his suffering to lead to their salvation and growth in grace. And Paul says this elsewhere as well. He says, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. And just think of the way that suffering And the lives of God's people lead to the salvation of many others. That they might be brought to glory with Christ and to the glory of God's name. Think of of China. We've talked about China several times. Think of how many believers are imprisoned, even killed in China. And the result has been what? An explosion of the church. The sufferings of those believers had led to glory in other believers' lives. Maybe you think of a missionary to Rwanda who a number of years ago faced 
the unexpected death of his 16-year-old son. But his son's funeral was the first breakthrough for the gospel in their ministry in Rwanda. Maybe you think of others you know here in the United States who face cancer, who face death, and yet do so in trust in the Lord, and that leads to gospel conversations with those around them. All of these are demonstrations of what that third century church father Tertullian said when he wrote that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. For the more that God's people suffer and persevere in suffering, the more their genuine hope in Christ stands out to the world and brings others to know Christ so that it is for their glory, their glorification in Christ, and ultimately, of course, for God's glory. So do not lose heart, brothers and sisters, in the face of suffering, knowing what God is up to and bringing many people to the church to the demonstration of the wisdom of God for the glory of His name. Finally, I want us to just note how significant Paul thinks the church is to God's plan. Paul's focus in this passage is not really on individuals being saved, although certainly Paul draws attention to that elsewhere. But here primarily, Paul's rejoicing to see the church, the the body of Christ, the community of God's people, come together, growing and living together and worshiping together in a way that glorifies Christ. And his desire is for the church to continue together to magnify the wisdom and glory of God. And for us, perhaps we could say this, if the church together as God's people is the demonstration of the power and the grace and the wisdom of God to the world and even even to the heavenly powers, then the church, its worship and its health, its evangelism, ought to be a priority for us as well. I mentioned recently that a number of studies have suggested that church membership has fallen below 50% in America for the first time in the history of polling. And a Kentucky-based pastor commented that really this shouldn't surprise us. He said, for many years, many churchgoers have shaped their faith around the rest of their lives, which are their priority, rather than shaping their lives around their faith. And the result is a low priority on the church. But Paul tells us here that the church is the key to God's eternal plan, the demonstration to the world of his wisdom and grace, not because we are awesome as God's people, but because in the changed lives and the fellowship and worship of God's people, the unsearchable riches of Christ are on display. The surprising grace and mercy of God who provides a way into His presence for sinners, is seen. And the manifold wisdom and power of God are evident to the world. And that's our desire, isn't it? And so, Paul draws our attention to the importance of the church. You know, in many ways, the Lord's Supper that we're about to partake of now is a perfect, visible picture of these things. It's a visible picture of the unsearchable riches we have in Christ, whose body and blood was shed for us and for our salvation. And it's a visible picture of the unity that we have as God's people with each other as we come together to the table of the Lord and as we remember that this table is the same table that believers across the centuries and across the world have come to as they come to find their hope in Christ. And so this table is a perfect summary of Paul's desire that the mystery hidden for ages would be brought to light so that it is clear to everyone what is the plan of God through the church to unite all things together 
in Christ, that his glory might be praised all the more. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. How we thank you for his body which was broken and his blood which was shed for us. And how we thank you for your plan which was perhaps clouded, held secret for in all of its details for many generations, but has now been revealed in Christ. How we thank you that you have called all people into one body through faith in Christ that we might be united in him. Father, would you encourage and strengthen our hearts. Give us joy in Christ. Renew our faith and hope and love in him as we come to this table this morning to the glory of your name. We pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.